We're in the middle of a series called The Center. This is uh, our examination of the life of Jesus through the, the lens of the Gospel of Luke. Um, one of the premises for this series is that we have a tendency to get distracted. We have a tendency to, to make minor issues major issues and to lose sight of the main and central uh, thing in our life. And for us, for those of us who identify ourselves as Christians, as followers of Jesus... There is no more central reality than Jesus himself. There's, there's nothing that's of more importance to us than, than Jesus. And so that's our heart and, and desire as a community in looking at the Gospel of Luke together is to come to this life of Jesus and, and, uh, and return to the center um, as a family of God. I just want to give a quick little review. At the end of chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. We're near the end of chapter 3. Jesus is baptized. And in his baptism... The Holy Spirit descends upon him, and God said, this, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We get a clarification about the identity of Jesus as God's Son, as this anointed one who will go forth and do the work of his Father throughout his ministry. So we get that at the end of chapter 3. At the beginning of chapter 4, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the reality that Jesus went out into the wilderness, a place of clarification, a place of testing, a place of stripping aside extras, and again, coming in um, to the center for Jesus. And in the wilderness, we learn how Jesus will go about fulfilling his vocation as the Son of God. And he'll do that by adhering to the Word of God more than anything else. By this expression, we look at faithful obedience, by residing in the will of the Father and walking forward um, in his will, over and against going his own way and using his power for his own purposes. And then we get a, a programmatic central statement in Luke 4. And Jesus returned from his wilderness testing in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus then begins his public ministry. And Luke gives us two windows next in the rest of chapter 4 that serve largely as... as um, pictures of what his ministry, what Jesus' ministry was characterized as, or what, it, what, it, what, it, uh, what filled it out, what, it, what took place in and through Jesus' ministry. So last week we looked at this initial sermon of Jesus' uh, teaching to his hometown when he sat down after reading the scroll from Isaiah 61 and talked about pro- proclaiming good news to the poor and release for the captives and sight for the blind and setting people free. And this hope, this great hope and expectation that the people of God have been waiting for God to come and restore his people, to come to their rescue, to bring about the hope that they had been longing for, of redemption, of liberation, and of release. They were an oppressed people. And so Jesus says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, and he identifies himself with this long-awaited hope of the people of God, that God would do something great. And they're excited and amazed, but then very quickly their reaction changes, as Ben showed us last week. As Jesus cryptically, in some ways, picks up strands of the history of this nation of God's people that show that God's redemptive purposes were not going to be restricted to the home team. And this infuriates his fellow Nazarenes, or people from Nazareth. Uh, They want God to come and to rescue them. And Jesus tells the story of God rescuing the wrong people. So somehow already in this 
ministry of Jesus, we see Luke's first picture is that Jesus' ministry will fulfill this long-awaited yearning that his people have, that, that God's people have. And yet, in so doing, it will be opposed and resisted at the same time. That in some way, when Jesus uh, comes to heal and to rescue and to redeem, that some of our expectations, some of our desires, some of our quote-unquote idols will have to be let go of. That's what we learn from that first picture. For them, this exclusive claim on God, for us, it may be our worship of other things, our love of, of, of money or pleasure or comfort, fill in the blank. But when Jesus comes to do this great and final work, as he did back in Palestine 2,000 years ago, and as he does again and again in the lives of individuals um, today and tomorrow and beyond, it causes us, there's resistance, it causes us to let go of something. So that's the first picture that we get that we looked at last week. So this next chunk, this final chunk of chapter 4, gives us a second window into the nature of Jesus' ministry and the nature of of what it would be like. And, And what we see in this section... Um, is this. We see Jesus teaching. If you've got your Bible, you can open it up to Luke 4. We see him teaching on the Sabbath. He's going around. uh, He's in Capernaum now, a neighboring city of Nazareth, a city in Galilee. We see him teaching. Then we see what? We see him exercising a demon from a man. So he's teaching. Then there's an exorcism. Then after the exorcism, there's a healing. He heals Simon's mother-in-law of a fever, a high fever. And then after the healing of of Simon's mother-in-law, we get more healings. Verse 40, Now when the sun was setting, all all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. So teaching, followed by an exorcism, followed by a healing, followed by multiple healings, followed by multiple exorcisms. Verse 41. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And then interestingly, in the last three verses of Luke 4, Jesus goes back to the wilderness, a kind of inclusio to the beginning of the chapter. Um, Chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus is led by the Spirit out to the wilderness. End of chapter 4. Once again, Jesus out in the wilderness. The wilderness in the first place was a time of clarification of Jesus' vocation as the Son of God. The wilderness in the second place is a reaffirmation of his vocation as the Son of God. To go and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to all the regions, to all people. So we get this kind of inclusion here of, of Luke bringing it back together and a clarification of Jesus' vocation. Now, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 24, you might know the story after his resurrection of the road to Emmaus, when these two disciples of Jesus are walking down the road, and Jesus comes up near them and pretends not to know why they're so upset or so distraught. And he says, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed 
and word before God and all the people. I want you just to hang on to that phrase, a prophet, mighty in deed and in word before God and before all the people. That's what we're given a picture of. So that's the end of Luke's gospel. Here in the beginning, in this second introduction to his public ministry, is Jesus, the Son of God, mighty in word and mighty in deed. His teaching about the kingdom of God, the teaching that we get um, better recorded for us in other places, or at least more holistically, but we also had a picture of it in, in this first window from the Isaiah 61 quote, but we get it in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6, or the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus teaching this way of the cross that he'll then go out and embody. This way of the kingdom, this upside-down way of serving rather than being served. Proclaiming the good news that God is breaking into the world and God will be God is reigning once again over all powers that are opposed to him. Jesus teaching this message in the synagogue and the people being amazed, mighty in word. We see that picture here in Luke 4. But we also see Jesus mighty indeed as well. Jesus setting himself apart in some ways from the many magicians of the first century who would at least feign exorcisms and other acts of power and do so with great bravado and and kind of hocus-pocus techniques. Jesus, with a simple word, rebuking the demon and casting him out. And the people responding to that act of power by, by astonishment and amazement. They were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands unclean spirits, and they come out. Jesus rebuking a fever in Simon's mother-in-law, and she's made well and instantaneously able to get up and help serve the meal in the home. Jesus healing many. Jesus, again, rebuking many other demons and having them come out. So we see this picture of Jesus, the prophet before God and before all people, mighty in word and mighty in power. That's the picture that we have from Luke 4 of Jesus. I want to just give a few insights from this text about what we see here. The first thing that we see in this record of Jesus mighty in word and mighty in deed is we see that Jesus is powerful. It seems like, well, that's obvious, isn't it? Isn't that what we sing and what we praise and, and proclaim about Jesus all the time? And I want to say, yeah, it's simple. It's a simple insight, but let's not just jump over it. Have we forgotten this in our lives today? Honestly, for those of you who have been walking with Jesus for some time, who've identified yourself as a Christian for some time, where's your level of expectation about what Jesus is able to do in your life? You just kind of expect for things to go on, to drone on and on and on, to keep fighting with the same struggles, battling the same demons that you have in your life over and over again without any change, without, without any power. One of the first things we need to take from this text from Luke 4 is that Jesus is powerful. Jesus is mighty to save. Jesus is able to rebuke those things that, that diminish us as human beings. He's able to set his people free. Jesus is powerful. That power threatens some, 
as we see the demons here? What have you to do with us, wanting to keep their distance? But it liberates and releases many. This power of Jesus is a power to liberate, to release. It's good news. Is it good news for you? So we see that Jesus is powerful. The second thing that we see that's important for understanding the whole of Jesus' work, both in the first century and today as the risen Christ reigning and ruling at the Father's right hand, is a clarification of the real enemy. We get a clarification of the real enemy in these exorcisms that Luke records for us at the beginning. That this is a cosmic battle Harkening back to the Garden of of Eden in Genesis 3, to this time in which the, the power of darkness, the principalities, the rulers, and the authorities of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, as Paul writes about in Ephesians 6, enter in and, and cause the world to be fallen and broken. And so in the first century parallel, the enemy for the nation of, of Israel is Rome. It's 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 this great empire. This is who God will come to rescue us from. But Jesus' ministry begins to clarify for them and really for us that the real enemy are these spiritual forces of evil, these demonic powers that that, that bind people, that that cause us to see, to, to not see, that blind people and bind people, that diminish us, that lead us down lots of dead ends, in places of heartache and trial and diminishment. Jesus, in his ministry, is against the devil. We see the temptation narrative at the beginning of Luke 4. Jesus fighting this battle, signifying for us that something deeper, something, something more basic is going on here. And then we see that continuing here as Jesus confronts these demons and casts them out by his simple word of power and authority. Jesus has come to do business with the real enemy. The devil and his forces are anti-human. They never lead to life, despite the fact that they always promise life and abundance. The tree produces fruit that looks really good, and it's going to make you like God, and it's going to make you better, it's going to make you feel good, it's going it's to set you free, it's going to fulfill you. And that fruit looks different for every one of us. But the temptation is always there. Go ahead. Take some. Eat some. Come. And serve me. God, on the other hand, in his ways, instead of being, instead of diminishing human beings, God is, his purposes, his shalom that he's bringing breaking into the world, brings flourishing at every point. If you imagine someone diminished and kind of hunchbacked and, and, and um, withered up and, and bent over, over and against someone who's standing up, like, the, like the, uh, the lame man in Acts 3 that we read about, who's jumping and leaping and praising God, having been restored to full health by God. This is what God is doing in the world. His resurrection power is working new life in us. And so this cosmic battle between life diminishing 
and enslavement and bondage and liberation and release and blessing and flourishing is the battle that Jesus has come to fight. So the question that I have is, who is your enemy? Think about this for a moment. It's not someone else. It's not a sickness or a health issue that you might have. It's not your boss. And it's not, and this is probably true for a lot of us, it's not even you. If you get down on yourself, frustrated with your failures, no, it's the devil and his forces at work in the world. It's those spiritual forces of evil. And who can fight that enemy? Not you. But Jesus. Jesus can fight this enemy. Jesus can bring freedom. Jesus can bring release. Jesus can bring healing. But let me say our enemy knows, the opponent knows the nature of this battle. He knows his own enemy, doesn't he? Look in Luke 4 again. What is it that the demons say? Interestingly, it's the demons who identify Jesus as the Son of God, the Holy One of God, Jesus of Nazareth. They know with great clarity this opponent. And knowing that, one of their greatest schemes is to keep us from coming to him. It's to get us to fight these battles on our own terms, with our own strength, in our own way. The devil wants us to avoid Jesus. But we call out to him. Or like the friends of Simon's mother-in-law here in Luke 4, and they appealed to Jesus on her behalf. As the battle gets clarified, as the enemy of Jesus is clarified, we know also our own enemy. And we learn a bit more about how to go about fighting it. We call out to Jesus. A couple more insights from this passage as we come to a close. The next thing is that there is a clarification of Jesus' vocation. I've already hinted at this. At the end of this section... Jesus, the one who's fighting the real enemy, the devil and his forces, doing so with great power and authority. After his active ministry, probably pretty worn out, after everybody brings everybody that's sick to him, and he casts out a bunch of demons, he retreats to a place in the wilderness, giving us a picture of the need to retreat to be with our Father. And in retreating, is sharpened once again. The people come running after him, and they say, no, Jesus, we don't want you to leave us. We, we want you to stay here. And look at that again in just a moment. And Jesus says no. He says no. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Jesus, the Son of God, not doing his own will, but obeying his Father, saying, I was sent by my Father for the purpose of proclaiming the good news of God's inbreaking rule, God's setting us free, God's liberating the captives. And so this purpose of Jesus is clarified for us in this passage. And then finally, this fourth insight is the inevitability of response to Jesus in his work, a prophet mighty in word and in deed. You see this response first in the demons. They respond 
with a, a desire to stay away. What have you to do with us? And even though they know who Jesus is and his identity, there is no thing like faith within them, but it's opposition. Demonstrating that there is such a thing as accurate and true knowledge, religious knowledge, that does nothing for a human life. That remains impotent, if you will, because it's not wedded to yielded faith. So the demons respond to Jesus. The people respond to Jesus. At this point, Luke doesn't comment as to what, whether this is a response of faith or not, but they respond with amazement. They're, in, they're, they're struck with awe at, at Jesus and at his ministry, at what he does. But it's interesting, you kind of read a little bit more into this response. I said I'd just come back to it at the end of Luke 4, where it says, People sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Jesus in the wilderness. Again, being tempted, not by Satan this time, the devil, but by the people to not fulfill his vocation to go into all these towns to proclaim the good news. They would have kept him from leaving them. Why? There's no indication here that that's because they have this response of faith to follow Jesus on the way of the cross. But rather because Jesus was giving them what they wanted and they wanted to keep him as their lucky charm or their little personal genie to do their wishes. And so they cling to him to hold on to him. And that's one response that we can have to Jesus even today. Jesus is here to meet my needs, to do my bidding. That's not the Jesus that we proclaim. And then there's the response hinted at, perhaps, in this woman, Simon's mother-in-law. When healed, she begins to serve. This response of faith, this response of, of turning to follow Jesus, not to, not to hoard him, but to begin to love him and to serve him and to give our lives over to him, to be sent out. We see that potentially here. Certainly it becomes clearer and clearer. And if the end of John's gospel is any reliable guide for us, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And Jesus says, I was sent to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So we can conclude that we too were sent to proclaim the good news of the kingdom in word and in deed, in the power of the Holy Spirit to all the world, to do so by the power of the one who has come to dwell in us by his spirit, this Jesus of Nazareth. So we get this picture from Luke of Jesus, a prophet, mighty in word and in deed, who's come to do his father's will. Do we trust him? Do we believe him? Do we respond to him by faith, coming to worship him and then being sent out with him? Those are the questions that I want to leave you with today.